Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast, now at the New York Public Library. I'm Robert Boynton. In this week's episode from The Vault, we hear a lecture on the revival of narrative in history by Lawrence Stone. Professor Stone taught at Princeton from 1963 to 1990. He is best known for his books, The Crisis of the Aristocracy, The Causes of the English Revolution, and Family, Sex, and Marriage in England. This evening's lecture is Lawrence Stone, Dodge Professor of History at Princeton University and Director of the Sheldley Colm Davis Center for Historical Studies. Professor Stone's scholarship is wide-ranging and consistently innovative. His most well-known works include The Crisis of the Aristocracy, The Causes of the English Revolution, and most recently, Family, Sex, and Marriage in England, 1500 to 1800, which I just learned has been banned in South Africa as pornography. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Stone is also broadly known for his reflections on trends in contemporary historiography. Tonight's lecture, The Revival of Narrative, I think falls into this category, and I'm pleased to present Professor Stone. Historians have always told stories from Thucydides and Tacitus to Gibbon and Macaulay, the composition of narrative in lively and elegant prose was always accounted their highest ambition. History was regarded as a branch of rhetoric. For the last 50 years, however, this storytelling function has fallen into ill repute amongst those who have regarded themselves as in the vanguard of the profession, the practitioners of the so-called new history of the post-Second World War era. Now, however... I detect evidence of an undercurrent which is sucking many of these prominent new historians back again to some form of narrative. The two essential ways in which narrative history differs from structural history is that its arrangement is is descriptive rather than analytical and its central focus is on man, not circumstances. It therefore deals with the particular and the specific rather than the collective and the statistical. Narrative is a mode of historical writing but it is a mode which also affects and is affected by the content and the method. Now, the trends I'm identifying tonight should not be taken to apply to the great mass of historians. All I'm trying to do is to point to a noticeable shift of content, method, and style amongst a very tiny but disproportionately prominent section of the historical profession as a whole. History has always had many mansions and must continue to do so if it is to flourish in the future. The triumph of any one genre or school eventually always leads to narrow sectarianism, narcissism, and self-adulation, contempt or tyranny towards outsiders, and other disagreeable and self-defeating characteristics. And we can all think of cases in which this has happened. I don't wish to be sued for libel, so I won't give them to you. In some countries and in some institutions, it has been unhealthy, it seems to me, that the new historians have had things so much their own way for the last 30 years. It's also, I think, essential to establish once and for all that this essay is not trying to chart observed changes in historical fashion, not to make value judgment about what is good and what are less good modes of historical writing. No one is being urged to throw away his calculator and tell a story. Now, let us go back and start with examining the causes of the abandonment of narrative in the first place around the 1940s or thereabouts. First, it was widely recognized, with some justice, that answering the what and the how questions in a chronological fashion, even if directed by a central argument, does not in fact go very far towards answering the why questions. Second, 
Historians were at that time strongly under the influence of Marxist ideology. Third, they were powerfully attracted by a social science methodology, which is, I suppose, why history is often classified as a social science in some universities like my own. As a result, they were interested in societies, not individuals, and were confident that a scientific history could be achieved which would in time produce generalized laws to explain historical change. Here I must pause to define what is meant by scientific history. The first so-called scientific history was formulated by Ranker in the 19th century and was based on the study of new source materials. It was assumed that the close textual criticism of the hitherto undisclosed records buried in state archives would once and for all establish the facts of political history. In the last 30 years, there have been three very different kinds of scientific history current in the profession, all based not on new data, but on new models or new methods. The three are the Marxist economic model, the French ecological demographic model, and the American climatic model, methodology, I beg your pardon. Well, we all know what the old Marxist model was, that history moves in a dialectical process of thesis and antithesis through a clash of classes which are themselves created by changes in control over changing means of production. In the 1930s, this idea resulted in a fairly simplistic economic social determinism which affected very many young scholars at the time, including, I may say, myself. It was a notion of scientific history which was strongly defended by Marxists up to the late 1950s, as can be demonstrated by the fact that the abandonment of the subtitle of the journal Past and Present, remind you, was, quote, a journal of scientific history, close quote, that abandonment did not take place until 1959. I was present at the meeting when it did take place, and I assure you we had to fight for two hours to get that subtitle removed. It should be noted that the current generation of neo-Marxists, as they call themselves, seem to me to have abandoned most of the basic tenets of traditional Marxist historians of the 1930s. They are now as concerned with the state, with politics, with religion, with ideology, as their non-Marxist colleagues. And in the process, I can see, they have dropped the claim to be pursuing scientific history. The second meaning of scientific history is that used since 1945 or thereabouts by the Annales School of French Historians, of whom Professor Loire-Ladry may stand as a spokesman. According to them... The independent variable in history is shifts in the ecological balance between food supplies and population, a balance necessarily to be determined by long-term quantitative studies of agricultural productivity, demographic changes, and food prices. Now, this type of scientific history emerged from a combination of long-standing French interest in historical geography and historical demography, coupled with a methodology of quantification. Loire-Ladry told us bluntly that, quote, history that is not quantifiable cannot claim to be scientific, close quote. The third meaning of scientific history is primarily American. It is based on the claim, loudly and clearly expressed by the climatricians, that only their own very special quantitative methodology has any claim to be scientific. According to them, the historical community can be divided into two. There are what they call the traditionalists, who include both the old-style narrative historians dealing mainly with state politics and constitutional history, and the new economic, demographic, and social historians of the Annale and past and present schools, despite the fact that the latter used quantification and that for many decades the two groups were bitter enemies. Indeed, in France, they didn't speak to one another at all. Quite separate, these people argue, are themselves, the climatricians, who define themselves by methodology rather than by any particular subject matter or interpretation of the nature of historical change. 
They are historians who build paradigmatic models, sometimes counterfactual ones, about worlds which never existed in real life, and who test the validity of these models by the most sophisticated mathematical and algebraical formulae applied to very large quantities of electronically processed data. Their special field is economic history, which they have virtually conquered, indeed I should say they have totally conquered in the United States, and they have made very large inroads into the history of recent democratic politics by applying their methods to voting behavior, both of the electorate and the elected. Now these great enterprises are necessarily the result of teamwork, rather like the building of the pyramids, a simile the significance of which I do not need to enlarge upon. The results they achieve cannot be tested by any of the traditional methods since the evidence is buried in private computer tapes not exposed in published footnotes. And in any case, the data is often expressed in so mathematically recondite a form that they are unintelligible to the majority of the historical profession. The only reassurance to the bemused laity is that the members of this priestly order disagree fiercely and publicly about the validity of each other's findings. Now, these three types of scientific history overlap to some degree, but I think they are sufficiently distinct, certainly in the eyes of their practitioners, to justify the creation of this tripartite typology. All three main groups of scientific historians were supremely confident that the major problems of historical explanation were soluble, and that they would, given time, succeed in solving them. And indeed, when I was young, I thought that by now we'd have solved the lot. Cast-iron solutions would, they assumed, eventually be provided for such hitherto baffling questions as the causes of great revolutions, the French, the Russian, the Chinese, and so on, or the shifts from feudalism to capitalism, or from traditional to modern societies. Many, but admittedly not all, regarded intellectual, cultural, religious, psychological, legal, even political developments as mere epiphenomena. Since economic and or demographic determinism largely dictated the content of the new genre of historical research, the analytical rather than narrative mode was best suited to organize and present the data. The data themselves had so far as possible to be quantitative in nature. Now the French historians, who in the 1950s and 60s were in the lead in this brave enterprise, developed a standard hierarchical arrangement. First, both in place and order of importance came the economic and demographic facts, then the social structure, and lastly, intellectual, religious, cultural, and political development. Now, these three tiers were thought of like the stories of a house. Each rests on the foundation of the one below, but those above can have very little or no reciprocal effect on those underneath. In some hands, the new methodology and the new questions produced results which were little short of sensation. The first books of Fernand Brodel, Pierre Goubert, or Emmanuel Loire-Lerie will rank amongst the greatest historical writings of any time or place, and that we have to admit right away. They alone fully justify the adoption for a generation of the analytical and the structural approach. The conclusion, however, was rather disturbing. It was historical revisionism with a vengeance. It's only the first tier really mattered. Since the subject matter was the material conditions of the masses, not the culture of the elite, it became possible to talk about the history of continental Europe from the 14th to the 18th or even the early 19th centuries as, quote, l'histoire immobile, changeless history. Professor Loire Ladery argued that nothing, absolutely nothing, changed over those five centuries because the society remained obstinately imprisoned in its traditional and unalterable economic and demographic trap. In this new model of history, such movements as the Renaissance, the Reformation, 
the Enlightenment and the rise of the modern state simply disappeared. Ignored were massive transformations of culture, art, architecture, literature, religion, education, science, law, constitution, state building, bureaucracy, military organization, fiscal arrangements, and so on, and so on, which all took place amongst the higher echelons of society during those five centuries. This curious blindness was the result of a firm belief that these matters were all part of the third tier, the superficial superstructure on top. Well, that is not too unfair description of what happened and how it happened. Now let me turn to the causes of what I believe is the revival of narrative, which has occurred, in my opinion, in the last six or seven years, since about 72 or thereabouts. Now, obviously, the first cause of the current revival of narrative is a widespread disillusionment with the economic determinist model of historical explanation and of this three-tiered hierarchical arrangement to which it gave rise. It was recognized that the split between social history on the one hand and intellectual history on the other has had the most unfortunate consequences. Both have become isolated, inward-looking, and narrow. In America, intellectual history, which had once been the flagship of the profession, fell upon hard times, and for a while lost confidence in itself. Social history has flourished as never before, but its pride in its isolated achievements was but the harbinger of an eventual decline in vitality when faith in purely economic and social explanations began to ebb. Historical record has now obliged many of us to admit that there is an extraordinarily complex two-way flow of interactions between the facts of population, food, climate, bullion supply, prices, etc. on the one hand, and values, ideas, and customs on the other. Along with social relationships of status and class, they together form a single web of meaning. Many historians now believe that the culture of the group, and even the will of the individual, are potentially at least as important causal agents of change as the impersonal forces of material output and demographic growth. Indeed, I can see no theoretical reason why the latter should always dictate the former, rather than vice versa. And indeed, evidence is piling up of examples to the contrary. Let me offer you one or two. Contraception. Now, contraception is clearly as much a product of a state of mind as it is of either economic circumstances or technological innovation. The proof of this contention can be found in the wide diffusion of this practice in France. Long before industrialization, without much population pressure except on small farms, and nearly a century before any other Western country. It's one of the most extraordinary and unexplained phenomena in history. Take another example. The Puritan ethic of thrift, punctuality, and hard work. It was, as we all know, a byproduct of an unworldly religious movement which took root in the Anglo-Saxon countries of England and New England, centuries before regular savings for capital investment or routine work patterns were necessary or before the first factory was built. On the other hand, there was an inverse correlation at any rate in 19th century France between literacy on the one hand and urbanization and industrialization on the other. The two simply don't match. I think this sort of evidence, which you can go on piling up examples of this sort, suggests that the linkages between culture and society are extremely complex and vary from time to time and from place to place. I think there are other explanations of why certain scepticism about the scientific history of the 50s and 60s. I believe one of the reasons is the decline of ideological commitment amongst Western intellectuals, which has also played its part. For example, if we look at the three most passionate and hard-fought historical battles of the 1950s and 1960s, 
but the rise and or decline of the gentry in 17th century England, but the rise or fall of working-class real income in the early stages of industrialization, the old Marxist hypothesis, and about the causes, nature, and consequences of American slavery, all were at bottom debates fired by current ideological concerns. It seemed at the time desperately important to know whether or not the Marxist interpretation was right or wrong. And therefore, these historical questions mattered and were, ex were passionately exciting. Now, the muting of ideological controversy caused by the intellectual decline of Marxism and the adoption of mixed economies in the West has coincided with a decline in the thrust of historical research to ask the big why questions. But I think it is plausible to suggest there may be some relation between the two trends. Economic and demographic determinism has not only been undermined by recognition of ideas, culture, and even individual will as independent variables. It has also been sapped by a revived recognition of the importance of political and military power, the use of brute force. The new historians of the 1950s and 60s will undoubtedly, I believe, be severely criticized in the future for their failure to take sufficient account of political organization and decision-making and the vagaries of military battle and siege destruction, and conquest. Civilizations, after all, have risen and fallen due to fluctuations in political authority and shifts in the fortunes of war. It is extraordinary to me that these matters should have been neglected for so long by those who regarded themselves as in the forefront of the historical profession. A belated recognition of the importance of personal political decisions by individuals, of the chances of battle, has forced some new historians back to the narrative mode, whether they liked it or not. To use Machiavelli's terms, neither vertu nor fortuna can be dealt with except by a narrative or even an anecdote. Since the first, vertu, is an individual attribute, and the second, fortuna, is a happy or unhappy accident. The third development, which has dealt a serious blow to structural and analytical history, is the mixed record to date of the use of what has been its most characteristic methodology, namely quantification. Quantification has undoubtedly matured and now established itself as an essential methodology in many areas of historical inquiry, especially demographic history, the history of social structure and social mobility, economic history, and the history of voting patterns and voting behavior in democratic political systems. Its use has undoubtedly greatly improved the general quality of historical discourse by demanding the citation of precise numbers instead of use of words. We historians can no longer get away with saying more, less, growing, declining, etc. Words which all logically imply numerical comparisons. Otherwise, they're, they're meaningless. Previously, we could get away with it without ever stating explicitly the statistical basis for our assertions. It has also made argument exclusively by example seem somewhat disreputable. Critics are now demanding supporting statistical evidence to show that the examples cited are typical and not exceptions to the rule. So these procedures have undoubtedly increased the logical power and persuasiveness of historical argument. There is therefore no disagreement that whenever it is appropriate, fruitful or possible, from the surviving records, the historian should count. There is, however, a difference in kind between the kind of artisan quantification done by a single researcher totting up figures on a hand calculator and producing simple tables and percentages, and, on the other hand, the works of the climatricians. The latter specialise in the assembly of vast quantities of data by teams of assistants, the use of the electronic computer to process it all, and the application of highly sophisticated mathematical procedures to the results. Doubts have been cast on all stages of this procedure. Many question whether the historical data are ever sufficiently reliable to warrant such procedures. 
whether teams of assistants can ever be trusted to apply uniform coding procedures to large quantities of often widely diverse and ambiguous documents, whether much crucial detail is not lost in the coding process, if it is ever possible to be confident that all the coding and programming errors have been eliminated, whether the sophistication of the mathematical and algebraic formulae are not ultimately self-defeating, since they baffle most historians. Finally, many are disturbed by the virtual impossibility of checking up on the reliability of the final results, since they must depend not on published footnotes, but on privately owned computer tapes. In turn, the results of thousands of privately owned code sheets, in turn abstracted from the raw data themselves. These questions are real, and they won't go away. We all of us know of doctoral dissertations or printed papers or monographs which have used the most sophisticated techniques either to prove the obvious or to claim to prove the implausible, using formulae and language which renders the methodology unverifiable to the ordinary historian. The results often combine the vices of unreadability and triviality. We all know of doctoral dissertations which languish unfinished since a researcher has been unable to keep under intellectual control the sheer volume of printouts spewed out by the computer, or has spent so much effort preparing the data for the machine that his time and patience and money have run out. One clear conclusion is surely that, whenever possible, sampling by hand is preferable and quicker than, and just as reliable as, running the whole universe through a machine. We all know of projects in which a logical flaw in the argument or failure to use plain common sense has vitiated or cast in doubt many of the conclusions. We all know of other projects in which the failure to record one piece of information at the coding stage has led to the loss of an important result. We all know of others where the sources of information are themselves so unreliable that we can be certain that no confidence can be placed in the conclusions based on their quantitative manipulation. A classic example of this, in my opinion, is the use of parish registers, upon which a gigantic amount of effort is currently being spent in many countries, only some of which are likely to produce worthwhile demographic results, simply because the parish registers are themselves so grossly incompetently kept by these often drunk and, and, and aged priests who couldn't keep them properly. Now, despite his unquestionable, unquestionable achievements, I would argue, therefore, that quantification has not fulfilled the high hopes of 20 or 30 years ago. Most of the great problems of history remain as insoluble as ever if not more so. Consensus on the causes of the English, the French, or the American revolutions are as far away as ever, despite the enormous effort put into elucidating by quantification their social and economic backgrounds. The causes of industrialization and urbanization remain as obscure as they were when I was a student. Thirty years of intensive research on demographic history has left us more rather than less bewildered. We now do not know, as we thought we knew when I was a student, why the population ceased to grow in most areas of Europe between 1640 and 1740. We don't even know why it began to grow again after 1740, or even whether the cause was rising fertility or declining mortality. We know nothing. Quantification has told us a lot about the what questions of historical demography, but relatively little so far about the why. The major questions about American slavery remain as elusive as ever, despite the application to them by Fogel and Engerman of one of the most massive and sophisticated quantitative studies ever mounted. His publication, so far from resolving most problems, merely raised the temperature of the debate. Urban histories are cluttered with statistics, but mobility trends remain as obscure as ever. Today, no one is quite sure whether English society was more open and mobile than the, the, the New England or the French in the 17th and 18th centuries, or whether the gentry or aristocracy were rising or falling in England before the Civil Wars, and so on. We're really no better off now in these respects than were James Harrington in the 17th century or de Tocqueville in the 19th. On any cost-benefit analysis, the rewards of large-scale computerized history, 
have so far only very occasionally, indeed perhaps never, justified the input of time and money. This has led historians to cast around for other methods of investigating the past, which will shed more light with less trouble. In 1968, Lois Ladurie prophesied that by the 1980s, but we're there now, quote, the historian will be a programmer or he will be nothing. This prophecy has not been fulfilled, least of all by the prophet himself. Historians are therefore forced back upon the principle of indeterminacy, a recognition that the, that the variables in history are so numerous that at a best only middle-range generalizations are possible, as Robert Merton long ago suggested. The macroeconomic model is a pipe dream and scientific history is a myth. Monocausal explanations just don't work. The use of feedback models of explanation based on Weberian elective affinities seems to me to provide better tools for revealing something of the elusive truth about historical causation, especially if we abandon any claim that this methodology is in any sense specifically scientific. Now, disillusion with economic and demographic monocausal determinism and with quantification has led historians to start asking a quite new set of questions, many of which were previously blocked from view by the preoccupation with a specific methodology, structural, collective, and statistical. More and more of the so-called new historians are now trying to discover what was going on inside people's heads in the past and what it was like to live in the past, questions which inevitably lead us back to the use of narrative. One of the most striking recent changes in the content of history, I would argue, has been a quite sudden growth of interest in feelings, emotions, behavior patterns, values, and states of mind. In this respect, the influence of anthropologists like Evans Pritchard, Clifford Geertz, Mary Douglas, and Victor Turner have been very great indeed. The first cause for the revival of narrative amongst some of the new historians has therefore been the replacement of sociology and economics by anthropology as one of the most influential of the social sciences. Although psychohistory is so far largely a total disaster area, a desert strewn with the wreckage of elaborate chromium-plated vehicles which broke down soon after departure, psychology itself has also had its effect on a generation now turning its attention to sexual desire, family relations, and emotional bonding as they affect the individual, and to ideas, beliefs, and customs as they affect the group. This change in questions being asked is also, I would suspect, related to the contemporary scene of the 1970s. This has been a decade, as we all know, in which the more personalized and egocentric ideals and interests of the so-called me generation have taken priority over public issues as a result of a widespread disillusionment both with politicians and with the prospects of change by political action. It is therefore plausible to connect the sudden upsurge in interest in these matters in the past with similar preoccupations in the present. This new interest in mental structures has also been stimulated by the collapse of traditional intellectual history which used to be treated as a kind of paper chase of ideas back through the ages, which usually ended up with Aristotle or Plato. The great books were studied in a historical vacuum, with little or no attempt to set the authors themselves or their linguistic vocabulary in their true historical setting. The history of political thought is now being rewritten by painfully reconstructing the precise context and meaning of words and ideas in the past, and showing how they have changed their shape and color over time, like chameleons, so as to adapt to new circumstances and new needs traditional history of ideas is currently being directed into a study of a changing audience and the means of communication. There has sprung up a new and flourishing discipline of the history of the printing press, the book, and of literacy, and of their effect upon the diffusion of ideas and the transformation of values. One further reason why a number of new historians are turning back to narrative seems to be a desire to make their findings accessible once more to an intelligent but not expert reading public. 
It is eager to learn what these innovative new questions, methods, and data have revealed, but cannot stomach indigestible statistical tables, dry analytical argument, and jargon-written prose. Increasingly, these new historians have found themselves talking to each other and no one else. Their findings have appeared in professional journals or in monographs so expensive and with such small press runs, usually under 1,000, they have in practice almost entirely been bought by libraries. And yet the success of popular historical periodicals like History Today or L'Histoire proves that there is, in fact, a large audience out there ready to listen. And the new historians are now anxious to speak to that audience rather than leaving it to be fed on the pablum of popular biographies and textbooks. After all, the questions asked by the new historians are those which preoccupy us all today. The nature of power, authority, and charismatic leadership. The relation of political institutions to the underlying social patterns and value systems. Attitudes to youth, old age, disease, and death. Sex, marriage, and concubinage. Birth, contraception, and abortion. Work, leisure, and conspicuous consumption. The relationship of religion, science, and magic as explanatory models of reality. The strength and direction of the emotions of love, fear, lust, and hate. The impact upon people's lives and ways of looking at the world of literacy and education. The relative importance attached to different social groupings, such as the family, kin, community, nation, class, and race. The strength and meaning of ritual and symbol and custom as ways of binding a community together. Moral and philosophical approaches to crime and punishment. Patterns of deference outbursts of egalitarianism, structural conflicts between status groups and classes, the means, possibilities, and limitations of social mobility, the nature and significance of popular protest and millenarian hopes, the shifting ecological balance between man and nature, the causes and effects of disease. All these are burning issues at the moment and are concerned with the masses rather than the elite. They are more relevant to our lives than the doings of dead kings, presidents, and generals. Well, that sums up the what I think are the causes for the change which I see in progress at the moment, and which I think is about to become much more evident. Let me now provide you with some evidence that the change that I have suggested to you is in fact occurring. It seems to me one can point to a significant number of the best-known exponents of the new history who are now turning back to the once-despised narrative mode. When they do, they and their publishers still seem a little embarrassed. For example, in 1979... The Publishers Weekly, which I understand is an organ of the trade, promoted the merits of a new book, The Story of the Trial of Louis XVI, as a matter of fact, with these very peculiar words. Quote, Jordan's choice of narrative rather than scholarly treatment is a model of clarity and synthesis. Just, just stop and think about this. Jordan's choice of narrative rather than scholarly treatment is a model of clarity and synthesis. Clearly the critic liked the book, but thought that narrative, by definition, can't be scholarly. And often when a distinguished colleague of the new school writes a narrative, his friends tend to apologise for him, saying, well, of course, he only did it for the money, and we all, get, we all try to slide past it that way. Now, despite these rather shamefaced apologies, the trends in historiography and content method and mode are evident, it seems to me, wherever one looks. Let's give us some examples. One of the most extraordinary publishing stories in history, it seems to me, is that of Norbert Elias's path-breaking book about manner, The Civilising Process, Published first in Germany 40 years ago, it has suddenly been translated first into French and now into English. It deals, for those of you who don't know about it, about such key aspects of manners and behaviour as invention of the handkerchief, the fork and the nightdress and things of this sort, which in fact are all linked together if you think very carefully about them. That's the nature of the personality, privatising one's fluids and, and one touching people and so on. Dr Zeldin has written a brilliant two-volume history of modern France in 
startlingly enough, a standard textbook series. This is a book which ignores pretty well every aspect of traditional history and concentrates on little other than the emotions and states of mind. Indeed, when it's been translated into French, it has been translated as l'histoire des passions françaises, which shows you how the French look upon it anyway, and that can hardly be called a textbook. Professor Philippe Ariès has studied the responses over a huge space of time to the universal trauma of death by telling a vast number of stories about how people have responded to death. The history of witchcraft has suddenly become a growth industry in every country, as has the history of the family, including that of childhood, youth, old age, women, and sexuality. If I may say so, in my opinion, the last two topics, women and sexuality, are in serious danger of suffering from intellectual overkill. The French have a word to describe this new topic, mentalité, which unfortunately is neither very well defined nor easily translatable into English. But storytelling, the circumstantial narration in great detail of one or more happenings based on the testimony of eyewitnesses and participants, is clearly one way to recapture something of the outward manifestations of the mentalité of the past. Analysis certainly remains an essential part of the enterprise, which is based on an anthropological interpretation of culture that at any rate claims to be both systematic and scientific. But this cannot conceal the role of the study of mentalité in the revival of non-analytical modes of historical writing, of which storytelling is one. There is even, remarkably enough, been a revival of the narration of a single event. Professor Georges Duby has dared to do what a few years ago would have been unthinkable. He's devoted a book to an account of a single battle. Now, who on earth has written a book about a battle for the last 30 years, the Battle of Bouvines? And through it, he has illuminated the main characteristics of early 13th century French feudal society. Carlo Ginsberg has given us a minute account of the cosmology of an obscure and humble early 16th century North Italian miller. And by it, has sought to demonstrate the intellectual and psychological disturbance at the popular level caused by the seepage downwards of Reformation ideas. Emmanuel Loire-Ladery has painted a unique and unforgettable picture of life and death, work and sex, religion and custom in an early 14th century village in the Pyrenees. His book, and of course I'm talking about Montaillou, is significant in two respects. First, because it has become one of the greatest historical bestsellers in 20th century France. Second, because it doesn't tell a straightforward story. There is no story. It just rambles around inside people's heads. And it is no accident that this is one of the ways in which the modern novel differs from that of earlier times. More recently, he has told the story of a single bloody episode in a small town in southern France in 1580, using it to reveal the cross-currents of hatred that were tearing apart the social fabric of the town. Carlo Cipolla, who has hitherto been one of the hardest of hard-nosed economic and demographic structuralists, has just published a book which is more concerned with an evocative reconstruction of personal reactions to a terrible crisis of pandemic, an outbreak of plague, than with establishing statistics of morbidity and mortality, which is certainly what he would have done 10 years ago. For the first time in his life, he told a story. Eric Hobsbawm has described the nasty, brutish, and short lives of rebels and bandits around the world, so as to define the nature and ob- objectives of his primitive rebels and his social bandits. E.P. Thompson has told the story of the struggle in early 18th century England between the poachers and authorities in Windsor Forest in order to support his argument about the clash of plebeians and patricians at the same time. Robert Danson's latest book, tells the story of how the great French encyclopédie came to be published, and in doing so has cast a flood of new light on the process of the diffusion of the Enlightenment thought in the 18th century and the problems of catering to a national and international market of ideas. Natalie Davis has presented the narrative of four charivaris, or ritual public shame procedures, in 17th century Lyon and Geneva, in order to illustrate community efforts to enforce public standards of honour and propriety. The new interest in mortality has itself stimulated a return to old ways of writing history. 
Keith Thomas's account of the conflict of magic and religion is constructed around a pregnant principle, along which are strung a mass of stories and examples. My own recent book on changes in the emotional life of the English family is very similar in intent and method, if not in achievement. Now, all the historians mentioned so far are mature scholars who have long been associated with, with a new history, asking new questions, trying out new methods, and searching for new sources. Now, they all seem to be turning back to telling stories. There are, however, I think, five differences between their stories and those of the traditional narrative historians. First, they are, almost without exception, concerned with the lives and feelings and behavior of the poor and obscure, rather than the great and the powerful. I am the odd man out in this respect. Second, analysis remains as essential to their methodology as description, so that their books tend to switch rather awkwardly from one mode to the next. Third, they are opening up new sources, often sources of criminals' courts, which use Roman law procedures, since these contain detailed written transcripts of the full testimony of witnesses under interrogation and examination. Fourth, they often tell their stories in a different way from that of Homer or Dickens or Balzac. Under the influence of the modern novel and of Freudian ideas, they gingerly explore the subconscious rather than sticking to the plain facts. And under the influence of the anthropologist, they try to use behavior to reveal symbolic meaning. And fifth, they tell the story of a person, a trial, a dramatic episode, not for its own sake, but in order to throw light upon the internal workings of a past culture and a past society. Now let me conclude. If I'm writing my diagnosis, the movement to narrative by the new historians marks the end of an era. The end of the attempt to produce a coherent and scientific explanation of change in the past. Models of historical determinism based on economics, demography, or sociology have all collapsed in the face of the evidence. But no full-blown deterministic model based on any other of the social sciences, politics, psychology, or anthropology, has emerged to take its place. Structuralism and functionalism have not turned out much better. Quantitative methodology has proved a fairly weak read which can only answer a limited set of problems. Forced into a choice between a priori statistical models of human behavior and understanding based on observation, experience, judgment, and intuition, some of the new historians are now tending to drift back towards the latter mode of interpreting the past. Now, although the revival by the new historians of the narrative mode is a very recent phenomenon, it is, of course, a mere trickle in comparison with the constant, large, and sometimes distinguished output of descriptive political narrative by more traditional historians. Such works have for decades been treated with indifference or barely concealed disdain by the new social historians. In recent years, this disdain has goaded some of the traditional historians to adapt their descriptive mode to ask new questions. Some of them are no longer so preoccupied with issues of power and therefore with kings and prime ministers, wars and diplomacy, but are, like the new historians, turning their attention to the private lives of quite obscure people. The cause of this trend, if trend it be, is not clear, not clear to me anyway, but the inspiration seems to be the desire to tell a good story, in doing so to reveal the quirks of personality and the humanness of things in a different time and culture. Now, some historians have been doing this for some time. In 1946, for example, Professor Trevor Roper brilliantly reconstructed the last days of Hitler. Just recently, in his new book called The Hermit of Pekin, he has investigated the extraordinary career of a totally obscure English manuscript collector, con man, forger, and secret pornographer who lived in China in the early years of this century, a man of no importance historically, whatever. The purpose of writing this entertaining yarn seems to have been sheer pleasure in storytelling for its own sake, the pursuit and capture of a bizarre historical specimen. The technique he uses is almost identical to that used years ago by A.J.A. Simons in his classic Quest for Corvo. The motivation appears very similar to that which inspired Richard Cobb 
to record in gruesome detail the squalid lives and deaths of criminals, prostitutes, and other social misfits in the underworld of revolutionary France. The fundamental reason for the shift amongst the new historians from the analytic to the descriptive mode is a major change in attitude about what is the central subject matter of history. And this, in turn, depends on prior philosophical assumptions about the role of human free will in its interaction with the forces of nature. The contrasting poles of thought are best revealed by quotation, one on one side and two on the other. In 1973, Lewal Edery entitled a section of a volume of his essays, quote, History Without People. Fanon Brodel has also given us a vast panorama, empty of human beings. By contrast, half a century ago, Lucien Febvre announced, Mon proie, c'est l'homme, my prey is man. And a quarter of a century ago, Hugh Trevor Roper, in his inaugural lecture as Regis Professor at Oxford, urged upon historians, quote, the study not of circumstances, but of man in circumstances. Today, this ideal of man in circumstances is catching on in many circles, although at the same time the analytical structural studies of impersonal forces continue to pour out from the presses. Today, therefore, historians are now dividing into four groups. There are the old narrative historians, primarily political historians and biographers. There are climatricians, who continue to act like statistical junkies. The hard-nosed social historians, still busy analysing impersonal structures. And the historians of mentalité, now using narrative to chase ideals, values, mindsets, and patterns of intimate personal behavior. The more intimate, the better. Now, the adoption by this last group of minute descriptive narrative and individual biography is not, however, without its problems. The main trouble is the old one, that argument by selective example is philosophically unpersuasive. It's a rhetorical device, not a scientific proof. The basic historical trap in which we're all ensnared, in which I see no way out, has recently been well set out by Carlo Ginsberg. He wrote, quote, the quantitative and anti-anthropocentric approach of the sciences of nature, from Galileo on, has placed human sciences in an unpleasant dilemma. They must either adopt a weak scientific standard so as to be able to obtain significant results, or adopt a strong scientific standard to obtain results of no great importance. Disappointment with the second approach is causing a drift back to the first. As a result, what is now taking place is an expansion of the selective example, now quite often a detailed, unique example, into one of the fashionable modes of historical writing. The second problem, which arises from the use of the detailed example, is how to distinguish the normal from the eccentric. This man is now our quarry. The narration of a very detailed story of a single incident or personality can make both good reading and good sense. But this will only be so if the stories do not merely tell a striking but fundamentally irrelevant tale of some dramatic episode of riot or rape or the life of some eccentric rogue or villain or mystic but are selected for the light they can throw upon certain aspects of past culture, some certain general aspects of past culture, not specific to the individual himself. The other problem concerns interpretation, and even harder to, to resolve. Provided the historian remains aware of the hazards involved, storytelling is perhaps as good a way as any to obtain an intimate glimpse of man in the past, to try, in fact, to get inside his head. The trouble is that if he succeeds in getting there, the narrator will need all the skill and experience and knowledge acquired in the practice of analytical history of society, economy, and culture if he is to provide a plausible explanation of some of the very strange things he's likely to find there. He may also need a little amateur psychology to help him along, but amateur psychology is highly tricky material to handle successfully, and some would argue it's impossible. Another obvious danger is that the revival of narrative may lead to a return to pure antiquarianism, to storytelling for its own sake. And I think the most, more recent books of Trevor Roper and Richard Cobb are enormous fun to read, but are both wide open to criticism on both counts. Moreover, many practitioners of the new mode, including Cobb, Hobsbawm, Thompson, Lewal-Edery, Trevor Roper, and, and myself, are clearly fascinated by stories of violence and sex. 
which appeal to the voyeuristic in instincts in us all. On the other hand, it can be argued that sex and violence are integral parts of all human experience, and that it is therefore as reasonable and, and, and defensible to explore their impact on individuals in the past as it is to expect to see such material in contemporary films and television and novels. Now, it is clear that the single world like narrative, especially one with such a complicated history behind it, and of course there's a whole discipline called narratology, I learnt to my horror the other day, is inadequate to describe what is in fact a broadcast cluster of changes which are currently taking place in the nature of historical discourse. And let me try and sum up the broad nature of those changes are. There are signs of a change in the central issue of history from the circumstances surrounding man to man in circumstances. In the problems studied from the economic, demographic, or social, to the cultural and emotional. In the prime sources of influence, from sociology, economics, and demography, to anthropology, and to a much lesser extent, psychology. In the subject matter, from the group to the individual. Explanatory models of historical change, from the stratified and monocausal, to the interconnected and multicausal. In the methodology, from group quantification to individual example. In the organization, from the analytical to the descriptive. And in the conceptualization of the historian's function, from the scientific, rather more, to the literary. These many-faceted changes in content, objective, method, and style of historical writing, which are all happening at once, have a clear elective affinities with each other. They all neatly fit together. No single word is adequate to sum them all up. And so, for the time being, narrative will have to serve as a shorthand code word for all that I believe is going on. Thank you very much. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.